ركضنا بالجبل يعني حفيانين ملابسين اجوا جريهم دم لحد الان ورجيتك اجرين واحد منهم وواحد ثاني كان احتياجات خاصه كانت run for six hours by the mountain with this two boy and this one guy just without any food and any water yeah so they run for six hours until they arrive to here to a settlement they still for two days they cannot walk or move because you know they uh, they run on the mountain but uh, without any Jews and so they have a lot of blood and in her hand so it was very very hard and very scared for them when they were traveling it was on a bus was it with other families as well so just just these little boys they came by the mountain but uh, her with the family and with the second wife they uh, they went normally to Lebanon two years and they go and they have yeah, because it was open the border and they let the synergies came to Lebanon, so there's no need to come by the mountain and pay for me. Welcome to Refugee Stories. My name is Jessica Stone, and today we're listening to a former nurse called Jawahai. At the moment, Jawahai is telling me about the two young boys that she's taken in. Jawahai herself came to Lebanon legally years ago, when the border was open. But to bring these two boys was a lot harder. They had to be smuggled into the country. Uh, she say she's Jawahir from Idlib, Syria. Uh, she lived uh, with uh, eight people of her family and with the second wife of her husband. And he also has two kids of uh, second wife. He take care of him, and before they live uh, in Idlib, but after the war, they decide to move to Lebanon. The children that you're looking after who don't have parents, mm. did you know them before in Syria? Uh, yes, she know him before. Uh, her sister was the second wife of her dad, of their dad. Um, why did she decide to take on these two children? I'm curious. Okay, uh, that, uh, before the, when they are living in Syria, so these kids, they know her and uh, they love her. So when their parents were dead, so they decide to, and they tell other relatives that we need to go to Lebanon and live with Amto uh, Jawahir, like this. Mm-hmm. They love Jawahir and they want to live with her. Also, she, she said that whatever will, will happen in the future, I will never let him go. I will just keep taking care of this boy. Um, why? Uh, first, she said that uh, I am a human and uh, they are boy, so I will never let him alone. And because also they choose me from between all the people who they know, so this is me like her second mom, so they are now like my babies, and I will keep taking care of them. When was this again? What time? The boys are here from about one month and five days. At this point in the interview, Jawahai showed me a photo on her phone. It was of a middle-aged man with extensive and bloody injuries to his face and chest. 
The photo was, of course, the father of the two boys she'd recently taken in. من أمل في هذا أبو هذا مين أبو للولاد. Who's the father of the two boys? Oh my gosh. Um, if what happened to him, if I may ask? طيارة ضربت كل عيلة. They got a bomb in her house in Syria, and only these two boys are safety, and they're still alive, and all the family like that. Do you know why there was a bomb? Was it aimed at something in particular? Okay, so no, it's not particular for because he is with, uh, with someone fighting or for another group, no. But uh, also because the bomb, it's not sticking on their house. It's near their house, but you know when the bomb are fighting, so something from the bomb, they kill them. Okay. And you know, because they have a lot of classes and on the house, so okay. we think they kill the family, all the family. If you don't mind me asking, how common is this in the area that you're from, these bombs that hit innocent families? She said that uh, every day they got like this bomb in the area where they live. And also, uh, before we came from about five minutes, was calling uh, her mom in Syria and she told her that uh, two men was died right now in a bomb uh, on her farm. They have a big farm in Syria and they got a bomb and Here, I think Hassan meant to say that five minutes before the interview started, Jawahai found out that two men were hit and killed by a bomb on her family farm in Syria. Um, Are they okay? Like emotionally? Do they seem distressed? They have a, a, a very lovely relation between her and between also her babies and all the family. And if uh, she leaves the tent for maybe one hour or two hours, so when she comes back, they run for them. And where are you? Why, why did you leave us? Like this question of babies. So yeah, they're okay and they love him. Feeling anxious when a caretaker leaves is a fairly standard sign of trauma. So I think it's reasonable to say that these two boys have indeed been traumatized by their experiences. Which makes sense considering that they've lost their entire family and were smuggled from their homeland during wartime. Yes, from Edlib to uh, to Hill Turbana, but of course not by the borders and you know because they cannot because they don't have any papers. So they came by the mountain and they pay for uh, some guys who they let him pass the mountain. They pay about $100 as a transportation from uh, Idlib to the border, to the mountain here. And they pay also $100 for each boy to let him pass the mountain and come here to Lebanon. So how did you organize 
to, to pay these people? How easy is it to find somebody to help you across the border? I'm curious about this. They don't pay for any money until they bring tickets for you to the settlement, and then after that, they pay for the money. How did you know to trust these people who brought them over? Uh, so yeah, uh, about the, this guy, so uh, the people in Idlib, they choose this guy to work between the government and between help refugee. So they know him and they trust him. So they choose him. Wait, so he works for the government or he works kind of sneakily? Yeah. But they picked him, the people. They picked the people, and uh, as I say, they don't give him any money until they arrive to the settlement, to a safe settlement. Maybe sometimes it will be like a common man for all the areas in Syria because he cannot just work in, in Idlib or in Aleppo. He can work and help in around Syria. To some people, this man is a hero. To others, an opportunist. And to still others, a criminal who illegally smuggles people across borders. But haven't many people all over the world smuggled people out of danger and later been lauded for their actions? Think of Oskar Schindler, as well as numerous others, all of whom smuggled Jews out of danger and are collectively responsible for saving tens of thousands of lives. It is, of course, important to note that people smuggling is illegal according to local and international law. Over 100 countries have signed a United Nations protocol that commits signatories to criminalising people smuggling. Australia is one of the countries that has committed to this protocol, which will surprise Absolutely nobody who's heard the average Australian politician talk about people smuggling in the past 20-odd years. We have reinforced our offshore uh, law enforcement and intelligence cooperation, and we have deployed more ships and more aircraft. We will not let you restart your illicit trade. Your boats will be intercepted and they will be returned safely. Since the coalition came into government in 2013, we have been diligently restoring the security of Australia's borders. No matter where people smugglers try to land asylum seekers by boat in Australia, they will not be settled in Australia. This is our core principle. This is our core unshakable position, that if people smugglers try and bring asylum seekers to Australia by boat, those people will not be settled in Australia. It is now over 830 days since a successful people smuggling venture has reached Australia. Expansion of our regional arrangements sends a clear message that coming to Australia by boat is not the way to gain Australian residency. If you are seeking to take the dangerous passage by boat, my message as Prime Minister of Australia is simply this, don't. Uh, our defences have never been as strong or as secure as they are today. And, of course, some people smugglers are truly despicable people who prey on the vulnerable 
and are undoubtedly criminals. Many of those who died had their hands tied behind their backs. These migrants had been pushed off a boat that a smuggler a was bringing into Yemen. People were forced from two boats and two About not, not being allowed to move, not being allowed to fulfill their basic needs, having to urinate on themselves, being beaten. As a result, almost 50 people had died because they cannot swim. Uh, if they moved, uh, being held at gunpoint, being forced into the water violently. Young boys, such as the two boys Jawahai is taking care of, are particularly at risk of human trafficking, abuse and exploitation, as are all unaccompanied refugee children. I was worried that we would find out about terrible things that had happened to the boys on their journey. Unspeakable things. This particular story didn't go in that direction, but it could have. She has one girl and... uh three boys, and uh, the second wife, she has two boys, and also they uh, take care of uh, two little boys from, uh, they are from Syria, from Aleppo, but uh, their parents are dead in Syria, so they live with him just to take care of him because they are very small, very little. There are 10 people in the same tent, in one family. Okay, so she said that they have a a small tent, so some of them, they they sleep at the cuisine, at the chicken, Uh, and the rest in the sitting room. Uh, about like money for the stuff for the kids, so she just has uh, UNHCR card, and it's about hundred dollar, dollar. So it's about two hundred and sixty Lebanese, not dollars, Lebanese lira. Uh, so it's nothing, but uh, she also tries from time to another to buy some of their clothes to just can buy some food for this for all the kids, not just for these two boys. Because mm-hmm. she and also because uh, she has a second wife and uh, she's uh, not excluded to the UNHCR, so they don't have enough money. Uh, so yeah. Sometimes they sell some of uh, their clothes to just pay for food or for rent or for some stuff. The second wife doesn't get a UNHCR card? Yeah. Why not? Could you explain that a little bit or if she could? For the second wife, uh, before she was excluded to the UNHCR, but now because uh, there's one time that the UNHCR, they sent a message for all the refugees who they got uh, the car to go to the UNHCR center to do a check their card. But uh, the second wife, she didn't uh, receive any message, uh, so she didn't went to the check. And uh, because she didn't go to the check, so uh, the UNHCR, they think that she leave Lebanon and come back to Syria, so they exclude her. Okay. And there's no way for her to get a card now? 
ما فيش اي طريقه انه ترجع هلا على والله رحت اشتكيت مرتين ما حدا رد علي رحت مرتين لقيصر عطى اخذتها ورحت اشتكيت اي ترايد اي تو تايمز تو وين تو ذا يو ان اتش سي ار بات nobody responded to them is this a common problem yeah a lot of these cases yeah are the two little boys registered okay so his father are not registered because she asked someone in the NHCR and he told her that they cannot be registered because they're just two little boys so they don't have any family or anyone to take care of them so they cannot register these boys is this a common problem that it's difficult to register people with I UNHCR? Registration, yes. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, because also the UNHCR right now, they just register only the new family, but uh, it will be a normal family with mom and dad and the babies. And uh, they didn't give him the card, they only give him like a code. A number, it's a code, and they are able uh, to use this code only for medication. And for, like, if uh, a woman she's pregnant and she wants to enter the hospital, so she can use this code just for the medicals, mm-hmm. but not to, to get the UNHCR card. And also because I think. Uh, there is a problem between the UNHCR and between the Lebanese government because the Lebanese government they don't want more registered refugees in Lebanon because if they register more, so a lot of refugees that will came to Lebanon. So I think this is a particular problem. Okay. Why the UNHCR they didn't register anyone? I did follow up with UNHCR about this case. And because I didn't have enough personal details about the children or the second wife, I wasn't able to confirm why the second wife and the two boys weren't registered at the time of interview. I really don't know why the second wife wasn't able to register. However, with the two boys, a possible answer, although not one confirmed by UNHCR, is that it's probably because new registrations had ceased at the request of the Lebanese government long before they arrived. I talked about this in Khansa's story in the first episode. And I'd also like to note here that what Hassan is saying is not a reflection of UNHCR policy, but is better understood as a reflection of how many refugees and locals understand UNHCR policy. Can you give me um, an example of a happy memory before the war? Okay, so she said that the, the most happiest moment for her was when uh, the second wife, because she has only one boy, and when the second wife, she burned a second boy. So uh, she said that now I have a brother for my son. So this is the most happiness thing. In your opinion, is it better for there to be two wives? Is it easier? Okay, so like the critical point in this good uh, relation, 
in the wives is uh, because uh, she is uh, biggest than the second wife from about, for about three years. So she respects her very much, and uh, that's the way why she became like uh, her daughter. Yeah, so she loves her, and they have a very, very good relationship, and if they care of us. So, yeah. That's like, it's like a respect more than a good relation. In the West, our perception of more than one wife is typically very negative. She <laughs> say, this is good, and she that this conversation will help other peoples in the West and the Europe to get more than one wife. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? I'll report back after we release the podcast if anyone. <laughs> if any listeners have been inspired to start polygamy, please write to us at refugeestoriespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to tell Jawahai that she inspired listeners. Do you find in the settlements that you're able to create like almost a sense of Syria together to create a community or is it very difficult? So, uh, she said that they make a lot of community here and uh, they like uh, right now they are they make like uh, to feel like uh, they are one family yeah. Uh, they are from a different uh, cities from Syria, but uh, here and they are all refugees, so make uh, like one family and do a lot of community and love each other and help each other here. So, yeah. What kinds of responsibilities um, do the individual families have in this Settlement. Oh, okay. So she gave an example for that. Uh, like uh, in the snowy uh, weather, when uh, a tent will uh, it or destroy it, so all the families here will run to help the family who they, uh, they lose her tent and they try to like. Uh, pay from her own money just to buy a new tent or new stuff. Here, Hassan is saying that in winter, when tents collapse from the weight of the snow, the families from the settlement pitch in to help rebuild the tent and replace damaged belongings. It's like uh, a lovely or like a helpful uh, relation between the families. Uh, she was a nurse in Syria, so every day she do a check for all the people who they need care in something and something she can do. So he do the visits for all the families every day. Okay, so she say uh, she learn her children to be patient in uh, the thing that they want to do it. And because if we are patient, so we can do everything and everything will got it. So this is the most important. Patience is the most important. Mm-hmm. What are her hopes for her children for the future? Are they currently in school or is it difficult for them to go to school at the moment? What is... 
What does she see for their future? I had a job with Mahmoud. I just did the job with the girls. I don't know if they will go or not. Because it's also a little bit away. Okay, so now children they went to the school, but they have like small problem by transportation because the schools are far away from here and because of the Lebanese neighborhood around the school, they they do a bad thing for children refugees there. And uh, she hoped for the future uh, because she said the important thing for her children is to be educated and uh, to help uh, her country in what they learn in universities and schools. So she hoped for her children that. Sorry, what sort of bad things happen to refugee like children they, in these neighborhoods? The kids and uh, yeah. Because they all, oh yeah, look, this is a refugee, like, let's hate them. The audio is a bit muddled here, sorry. Hassan said they hit the kids. So, uh, she said that before, when they are living in Syria, so uh, they have a like, peaceful life. You know, it was good, and uh, a lot of relationship between families and friends, and uh, his husband, uh, she owned like a small supermarket in Syria, and uh, she got married for the second wife. They have a big family, but uh, she said that all the stuff, all the groceries, all things in Syria are very cheap in this moment, so uh, it was a good, it was a very good life, and uh, like, uh, they were very happy in their life before the war. Shawahai is from Edlib, which is close to both Turkey and Aleppo. Right from the uprising in 2011, Edlib has been a hotspot for fighting and protests. From March 2015 onwards, the city was mostly rebel-held. Syrian rebels capture the strategically important city of Idlib in what's seen as a big blow to President Bashar al-Assad. Idlib in particular, now largely under the control of an al-Qaeda group, uh, links group called Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. So it's going to be no easy fight uh, getting control of that Idlib area. The capture and exchange of prisoners was a major feature of this war as both a bargaining chip with enemies and as a source of raising funds. Some political analysts consider Edlib to be strategically important, and others don't. I'm not a political analyst, so I can't really tell you. But I can tell you that life under the rebel forces is generally not enjoyable. Living in a rebel-controlled area means that there are regular airstrikes by Russian and Syrian army forces, as well as large numbers of displaced Syrians from other parts of the country. Most systems are not functioning, and food is scarce. Edlib province is now meant to be one of the de-escalation zones, as agreed upon by Syria, Russia, Turkey and Iran, in the Astana talks, which happened in September 2017. The idea was that the fighting between rebel groups and the forces fighting on behalf of Bashar al-Assad and the Syrian government would stop. This would be done with Russia, Turkey and Iran acting as guarantors. However, airstrikes continued. 
This area in the northwest of Syria has been under heavy bombardment by pro-government forces. 500 Turkish soldiers are heading to Idlib with tanks and armoured cars to act as peacekeepers. This was the moment Turkish armoured vehicles entered Syria's northern Idlib province. Four de-escalation zones in Syria, mainly in rebel-held areas. Tensions in the country are far from diffused. Of course, at no point does Jawahai say she is pro or anti the Syrian government. Edlib is just where her family is from. Them being in a rebel-controlled area doesn't mean anything about their politics. She said that uh, there's a big difference between uh, her life now and the life before in Syria because uh, in Syria uh, they only live in her own house, in a big house. So there's no, no need to pay for rent or for water or for electricity. And uh, also because, uh, like uh, here in Lebanon, the Lebanese people, they look for them like a refugee. But in Syria, they live like a, in a freedom. So uh, it was much different between here and the life before. And because also, of course, they have everything. They have work, they have money, they have house and everything. What, were, what are her parents like in Syria? Uh, she said before, uh, before the war, they live uh, a happy life with her parents and uh, also her parents was like uh, an older and older man and woman but uh, they have a lot of land around Idlib and uh, they work in this land as like culture and uh, yeah and uh, they have like enough of life you know uh, but now, after the war, they moved from uh, Idlib to Aleppo, because Idlib now are not 50, and uh, they still live till now in Aleppo, but uh, just with one of uh, her brother. She contacted him a little bit, maybe one or two times every month. Because uh, just it's accounting for uh, her connection, because you know, because of the bombs, so they don't have a good connection every every time. So when they have a good connection, so they call. Not having a good Wi-Fi connection is one of the side effects of living in a majority rebel-controlled area. And are they able to talk much when they do talk? It's not like a normal call because they don't have uh, a cell phone or a phone number. They just uh, uh, use uh, the WhatsApp of some of uh, the neighbours there and they just uh, send uh, like uh, a voice note uh, by WhatsApp. Just one or two voice notes. You must really miss them. She said that yes, she missed a lot, uh, especially her father, because uh, she has uh, high pressure, I think. After a short conversation, we figured out that Jawahai's father has diabetes, which is not the easiest thing to treat in a region like Edlib, where doctors and hospitals are often the target of attacks. Is this something that's 
become stronger for you because many people we talk to say they found greater strength through faith and religion that maybe they didn't hold quite so closely before. So, uh, she say that when she say Yarab, Yarab is God. Uh, so he's been more stronger and uh, more able to stay strong. And because she say that now we are a refugee, I ha- she has a lot of medical cases and she like went to to die before because he has a lot of uh, health problems but she received the surgery so now she's okay and uh, she has a big family she has a big responsibilities and she want to she she should uh, like found a lot of uh, stuff for this family and also because yesterday uh, the kids asked her for uh, clothes and stuff for the Eid next week uh, but uh, she said when I say Arab so but right now we're still alive and uh, uh, with all these problems we're still alive and we're still good so yes this makes her more stronger and because also she say that uh, she she has to pay money for rent and she has to pay money for water and for everything uh, and it's a very hard life for her but uh, when he say Yarab, so uh, she been more stronger and all these problems have nothing for her. Because with all these problems, until now, she feel good and she live with her all her family. So that's the most important. So yeah, let's make sense for her and let's make her more stronger. I'm curious, why are you using a different word for God? It's Allah and Yarab. Yarab is when you want to speak to God. You say, like, hey, Jessica. So say, Yarab, like, hey, God. So it's Yarab. But Allah is the name of Allah, of God. Are her parents safe or is she quite worried? I'm curious as to why they've stayed and she's come. Okay, she say that uh, they don't feel safety where they are right now. Uh, and they don't they don't want to came to Lebanon because they cannot they are an older so and they cannot walk for a long time by the mountain so it will be very hard and for them to came to Lebanon so they decide to just stay in Syria. Mm. But of course you say it's not safety. What was the moment that made you realize that Syria wasn't safe? Uh, she said that uh, in the beginning of the war, so she decided to never leave Syria or her country. But because uh, of uh, his biggest son, because uh, he saw a lot of uh, how the Syrian army and how I killed the people there and hate the people there, so he he's like chocolate and uh, 
we cannot move and there are a lot of medical problems because of this uh, situation so uh, she went to the doctor and the doctor said that uh, you need to emergency move your son to, to a hospital out of this area or he will kill so uh, yeah this is the way why she decided to leave Syria and came to Lebanon and because Of course, they are very close to Syria, and it's more simple to come to Lebanon than another country. So, instead, just to give the treatment for his son. Um, how is it that your son saw these things happening? Okay, she said that uh, before they lived near a security airport or uh, an airport for uh, the Syrian army. So, uh, and uh, near her house, they have uh, like uh, something like the Red Cross, it's according just to Syria. It's an ambulance or something. So, uh, every time that they got a bomb on, because, you know, it's uh, like, uh, it was like uh, a security point, the airport and around the airport, they, they got a lot of bombs on the airport and, and the houses around the airport. So, uh, Every time they got that bomb, so this ambulance or they just go and uh, take the killer man and all the people who got injuries. So you, anyone can see this, this thing and this, yeah. It was very hard and very difficult and uh, also uh, when they have enough bread in the area so they decide to make the bread by their own self so uh, they make like uh, a small ovens uh, and make it by the firewood and but when the well the Syrian army they see this uh, fire, so they think that something will happen, so they came and bombed them. Yeah, so it was very hard. So the house, her house in Syria? No, or near her house. Or near her house. And also her house, they got a bomb. So you don't have a house anymore? Place where they lived before. It's like a big land, no houses, no buildings, nothing. All was detroited. Do you hope to go back to rebuild in the future? She not just to come back and she to come back and uh, just live in just a land, not in a tent. He's able to live, but just come back. Because uh, she said that because it's more different uh, between live out of our country in a tent and live. I mean, just a land, but in our country, so it's mm. more different. Do her children want to go back? Do they remember Syria fondly? Okay, she said that uh, with these all wars and problems and bombs, but uh, her kids, they still remember Syria and their life in Syria, and they keep talking about that. In Syria, we do that and we do that, and they still hope to come back and live in Syria. What makes Syria special? 
Okay, so she said that must uh, think that make uh, Syria different is the before the war, the safety and uh, like the people they love each other and uh, they help each other. So uh, it's like kind of uh, lovely thing between the peoples in Syria. So. This is why they are special. Now, I know it might seem strange that the thing that makes Syria special is its safety. After all, everybody knows that Syria is in the midst of quite a serious civil war. But compared to life during war and life as a refugee, normal life in Syria was safe. Okay, uh, she say in like a general wish for all around the people in the world uh, to just help with whatever they can to find a solution for the war in Syria and to help refugees to come back to their country. This episode was made in association with Salam LADC, a wonderful local NGO working in the Bekaa Valley right now. If you'd like to contribute, you can donate via PayPal at donation at salamladc.org. That's donation at salamladc.org. Of course, all statements are my own and not to be blamed on Salam in any way. They merely provided the support for this project of mine and should not be held responsible for my political beliefs or probable errors and misunderstandings. This episode was sponsored by Hindenburg Audio Suite, the fantastic audio editing program that was used in the making of this episode. Head to their website, hindenburg.com, that's H-I-N-D-E-N-B-U-R-G.com, to learn more about this excellent program particularly if you're interested in making your own podcast. For the music, thanks go to Alpha Male, Band Internacional and Comunale, Chris Zabriskie, Dr. Turtle, Jilly Cudley, the Orchestra of Syrian Musicians, and Tutand. And an enormous and very grateful thanks to Hassan Chubasi for his hard work translating. Further thanks go to Johnny, who was my assistant for this episode. It's his beautiful photography on the website as well. So a double thank you to John. Thank you also to Jessica Alexander Lillycrap for her continued support and to Miguel Asota Sanchez for keeping me on an even keel. I would also like to apologise for the enormous delay on releasing this episode. I've been very busy in the last few months with moving house and changing jobs. And unfortunately, this podcast has fallen by the wayside a little bit. However, for the year of 2018, episodes will be released every six weeks. I would also like to apologise for the enormous delay on releasing this episode. I've been very busy in the last few months with moving house and changing jobs. And unfortunately, this podcast has fallen by the wayside a little bit. However, for the year of 2018, episodes will be released every six weeks. Thank you also to Jawahai herself and all the other refugees who let me into their homes and trusted me with their stories. I can only hope that these stories go out into the world and help others to understand the situation. And finally, my name is Jessica Stone. I'm the writer and producer of this podcast. Thank you for listening to Jawahai's Story. <laughs>